Hello and welcome to Podcast for Patriots. This is your host, Jim Fralick from Froggy Realty. I ain't rich, but I damn sure wanna be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. And today I'm excited to be interviewing Doug Nordman. Doug is a retired submariner from the Navy who lives in Hawaii, and he is a real estate investor. But beyond real estate investing, uh, really, he does uh, finance and personal finance advice for retired military veterans and much more. Uh, my limited understanding of Doug is that uh, he's he likes to surf. He's written some books. He's a martial artist, and he reads and writes a lot. But uh, Doug, can you hear me fine? I can, Jim. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed your initial episode, uh, especially the uh, intro and the outro music. I like that a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I worked hard to think about what to select there, so I'm pretty happy Good about lyrics. it. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, Doug, I just gave a quick sketch, but I wonder if you could give the listeners a minute or two about your military background, a little more about uh, how you got involved in real estate, and then your overall current focus. If you yeah, I uh, retired from the U.S. Navy Submarine Force in uh, 2002. Uh, my spouse was also active duty Navy and did a few more years in the reserves. We uh, had a high savings rate during our careers, and when I retired from active duty, we were financially independent. After we retired, we uh, figured out what we would do all day, which a lot of people worry about when they retire, but it's worked out fine. One of the things that uh, has occupied our time over the last 18 years that we've lived in this house up here in uh, central Oahu was our, our rental property. And over the years that we were on active duty, we always bought a house at every duty station we're at because, as you know, real estate always goes up. Of course. And uh, when we uh, yeah, when we uh, moved here, we bought a house. And then uh, when the Navy changed our duty station unexpectedly, we were in that classic military family trap where we owned a home and had to rent it out from uh, several time zones away. We still uh, we still own that house today, and we've kept it up over the last 18 years. And uh, it's finally starting to cash flow and show some some revenue for for profit. Uh, but it's been uh, quite an interesting journey, and so it's always uh, an interesting discussion among other military families who think they want to buy a home wherever they're stationed or they think they want to get started in real estate investing. Uh, as you know, there's plenty of resources out there, and I try to help them figure out a, a dose of reality to their fantasy of being a landlord. Uh, I've written a book on military personal finance. It's, it's a military guide to financial independence and retirement. And I blog at the Military Guide about military personal finance topics, and eventually real estate comes up in that. So while we're landlords and while we have the experience, I try to help people figure out what they really want to do, whether they really want to become a landlord and a real estate investor, or maybe they just want to rent while they're on active duty and even for a while after they get out of the military. 
Okay, great. Yeah, I saw that uh, a book. I'm definitely going to uh, uh, purchase it and read through it. I saw the reviews were were really great, and it looks like you uh, even give the profits back to military charities, if I read that right. I, I do. All my writing revenue goes to military-friendly charities, so if you're looking for the book, you might be able to find it at your local library, or if you're close to a military base, it might be in their library. Awesome. That That's awesome. So thanks, Doug, for giving a little bit more on your background, and that's very interesting and um, I- incredible. Congratulations to you on being uh, financially independent upon retirement from the military. That puts you in a very small percentage, I'm sure. Uh, that That's incredible. So I'm definitely looking forward to learning a little bit more about that. And it sounds like you probably have a lot of warnings you can give military people, but I'm going to ask you to narrow down one day because, <laughs> as you know, if you listen to my first episode uh, with my little uh, battleship sound there, we're... Early warning systems online. General quarters, general quarters, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. I want to give an early warning to people at the start of my podcast or near the start. So I, I completely agree. My, my warning to uh, any military service member, once they move into a new neighborhood is that they really should think hard uh, about renting or living on base, uh, whichever choice they make and, and think hard about that before they as a residence, as a primary residence, because they like to live there. They don't have the time when they're investment property. And so they rarely end up with a place that they could rent out if they happen to transfer out of that duty station. We all see or we all hear and see the uh, rosy predictions of how to make lots of money in real estate. But I get the emails and the Facebook messages from people who get caught in a squeeze because they bought a home in one duty station and then the military unexpectedly transferred them. And suddenly they're landlords from thousands of miles away. They don't necessarily have a property that would rent out for cash flow. And it's really a financial burden and a tremendous amount of stress on a military family. So my advice is that if you want to invest in real estate to buy investment properties, but don't buy a home at a military duty station because it's a nice place for you to live and then expect that you can rent it out and make a cash flow out of it after you leave that duty station. That's a great advice. And I have seen that and thought about it a little bit. And I've run into guys that I work with right now. I still work uh, my day job as a systems engineer. So I work with a lot of active duty military, mostly air force guys, but uh, other services too. And uh, it seems like more of the people that have bought homes around me are disappointed, had stressful situations. And and, the message I always get is, well, I was just glad to get that off my hands finally. So, Oh yeah. What I, what I hear a lot, too, is that when people move into a new duty station, they get uh, marketing from realty companies or Veterans Administration VA loan lenders who uh, want to give them a they'll use a lot of high-pressure sales tactics. I think that if you want to invest in real estate when you're in the military and move to a new duty station and, and live on base or rent your place outside of the base – and then start looking for real investment real estate, real estate. Go find the rental properties. Go find the good investments that meet all the thumb rules that you read about in the real estate books or the Bigger Pockets website. And once you find those investment properties, then you're ready to buy. But you shouldn't necessarily buy a home that's for you and your family just because you think you'll be able to rent it out someday. That makes sense, definitely, because you have the pressure of your 
you're starting a new job, you're at a due station. If your kids have to, you have kids that are going to a new school, you have a lot of stuff going on. So if you try to cram in uh, buying a home on top of that, then I could see you, you know, rushing and making mistakes in terms of thinking about it as an actual future investment. Oh, oh yeah. And you put a lot of pressure on yourself by trying to do that. And you really don't have the time to do a thorough evaluation of the neighborhood and the, and the rental properties that are on the market. Now, if you're moving back to your old hometown because it happens to be a place where your military duty station is, then maybe you've got a head start. Or if you've got a really good network at a military base and somebody's out there scouting investment properties for you, I could see that working. Uh, but again, I get a lot of emails from people who have uh, moved into a military base and gotten suckered into buying a house out in town for, for all the right reasons. They uh, they want a good school system or they have trouble finding a, a rental property where the landlord will take their pets or whatever the reason may be. And suddenly they end up in a very nice home, great place to live. It just doesn't meet any of the thumb rules for being a good investment property. That makes sense. And actually, why you're why you're talking about this subject is interesting because I read, I was reading through one of your articles about post military life. Now I wasn't in twenty years. Uh, ironically, I would have I would have been in twenty years as a submariner, but I I was in the delayed entry program. <laughs> so interesting little side note: I was in the delayed entry program in nineteen eighty seven, before I was out of high school, against my father's wishes. I went down to the MEP station in Miami. I grew up in South Florida. And uh, enlisted in the Navy and came home and was like, I'm going to the Navy. And back then they had uh, <laughs> <laughs> the offer of big bonuses, you know, if you re-enlisted. Of course, you're 17, you're not thinking about enlistments, re-enlistment six years from then. So uh, I almost was on that path. And when I got the orders uh, to go to report to Orlando six months out, I started getting a little nervous thinking about being down in a submarine. And uh, I was like, well... I hadn't really thought this through, um, but it, it was one of those more coveted jobs, or it seemed when I took the ASVAB or whatever the test is called for the Navy, maybe it's the same thing. The uh, Long story short, I applied for ROTC scholarships and ended up taking uh, the the route to college first, ROTC, and uh, Air Force instead of Navy at some point. But I was in that era where we all just wanted to be Tom Cruise, right? I just wanted to fly off a carrier deck, so... <laughs> <laughs> Those are my questions at the MEP station. So I, I will be able to fly a jet, right? Well, yeah, yeah, kid, that'll that'll come around. <laughs> yeah, eventually. Uh-huh. So, uh, but getting to my main point, so I was in six years and we moved four times and we ended up, um, I sort of targeted where I wanted to end up um, because you could do that back in the late 90s. And we chose to live 100 miles north of Boston and kind of was in that time crunch of getting out and didn't really have my job lined up and uh, uh, chose the house and had it built and it was offsite. And it was a few nightmares with having a contractor building my first home. And I was, you know, 29 years old. I would like to go and I'm, I would like to go back and do that again, but we don't want to ever move from what we consider our forever house to use a term I saw oh, in, yeah. your, in your article. So I'm wondering if you could share a few thoughts about that, about the idea of, uh, buying or building right away as you're getting out? Oh, I, have, I have quite a bit of data over that gathered over the years from surveys and interviews with people. And there's a, uh, a, a institute, uh, institute for Military Families and Veterans up in uh, Syracuse University that does a lot of that research. And companies, groups like Blue Star Families will also talk to a lot of military people. 
And what they've learned over the years is that when you get out of the military, whether you're a veteran uh, who leaves after one enlistment or whether you've done 30 years and retired, either way, that first thing you do when you get out of the military, over 80% of us, is start the bridge career. Now, sometimes it's because you want to continue to serve or you want to see what you can do in the civilian world or you just think that you need to get more money for your family's college fund or more money to live the lifestyle you want. It turns out that the military offers a lot of advantages for a high savings rate and for reaching financial independence on active duty. But we, we don't really know about that usually when we're on active duty, uh, and it's been uh, difficult for people to figure out how to do that. Um, I'm here to help with that. But when you do get out of the military, you're probably looking for a job. And if you're looking for a job, the conventional wisdom is to go to some location where the job is. In other words, go start applying for jobs while you're on active duty wait for the offers to roll in, and then decide where you're going to live based on what job offer you get. Now, we all know people who have tried to move to some section of the country where they're close to family or they're close to the best golf course they've ever played or whatever their preference is. Maybe it's a really nice surf break. But when you try to do the location first and the job second, now you're stuck in that local employment market. It might have a high employment rate. It might not have careers that you want to do. It might be difficult for you to find something that you enjoy as a bridge career after the military. And if you've stuck yourself in a location and then started looking for the job, you're probably going to be unhappy. And even more significantly, what these surveys have learned is that many veterans don't get that bridge career choice the first time. They take a job. They think they got a good location. They think they got a good career. A year or two goes by and they realize they might have made a mistake or they find out they're really good at their bridge career and they are starting to move up in the organization. But the surveys, the data, the research shows that within two years after leaving the military, almost half of the veterans change their jobs and change their locations. Wow. Now, if you've been, yeah, if you've been moving around in the military and you've been reading about uh, getting out and where you're going to live and what you're going to do and you started getting suckered into the myth of the forever home – then when you take that bridge career and you move into a new location to start that job, it's very easy to decide, well, I'm going to go buy a home because I'm where I want to be after my career. I'm in a job I like, and this is a nice area, so I'm going to buy a home. I'm going to live there forever. And you know how that feels when you're getting out. Now. You understand that transition stress, and it's quite a bit stressful. Now imagine that you have that bridge career and you realize that you're going to need to change your job in a year or two because you either don't like the bridge career you ended up in or you're doing well and the corporation wants to transfer you somewhere else. You just bought a house a year, maybe two years ago, and now it's happened. You get orders and you're moving again, or even worse, you decide to move on your own. So that's the scenario that many people get themselves into when they're chasing that myth of the forever home. And, and I tell people when you're getting out of the military, keep renting. Just find a place to live. Don't make a long-term commitment to the real estate. Instead, figure out the bridge career, figure out how it's going. Give it 12 to 18 months, and at the end of that time, you'll have an idea how long you'll be there. The average American family, everybody, military or civilians, moves every seven years. So even if you are in your forever home after you get out of the military, you still might move two or three more times during the rest of your life if you are moving for family or for retirement purposes. So when you get out of the military and you have to make that first real estate decision, stay in a rental for a while. And that way, once you find that you do enjoy the job, you do enjoy the area, everything's working out. Well, in that 12 to 18 months that you've been renting, you have plenty of time to research the market. You can look at all the best neighborhoods with the ideal school systems. And even more importantly, you can watch for that house that goes 
market with a distressed seller at a really bad time of the year. Maybe it's a, a house that needs a little tender loving care or some uh, rehab work done on it. But for whatever reason, you're in a neighborhood and you're ready to move fast and you can take care of finding a place at a bargain. And as you probably know from your experience, you really make your money on an investment property when you buy it at a discount, not when you sell it later on after you fix it up. So that's the best way to get into property investing. Best way to get into a house after the military is to keep renting. I know it's a hassle because you end up getting out of the military and moving to that location. Mm-hmm. And then you're renting and then you end up moving again to the new property that you're going to live in. But in the long run, it's the best thing for your finances. And if you should end up moving after that first time out of the military, after that job isn't coming out the way you expect it to, then you're just renting and it's easy to move. Spot on, spot on. Great advice. So many things in there uh, make sense of what you've just said. And, and um, I'm a uh, living proof. I basically <laughs> lived, lived almost everything <laughs> yeah, you no, just no said pressure. in that. Yeah, I won't, I won't go back and, <laughs> and break it down, but I, I, I lived exactly everything you said miraculously and kind of like um, uh, one of the guys I saw that wrote uh, a rebuttal to to uh, one of your articles, he was sort of in my spot where he was like, happens to be one of those few people, 18 years later, I'm still in the same house. But what you say makes so much more sense than say what I actually did with my life. But we're, uh, but long story short, we did just deliberately pick this retirement community called Wolfboro. That's a, a summer resort town in central New Hampshire. And I just said, well, it's 1999. People are going to be telecommuting soon. We'll just make it work. And, uh, oh boy, it's been a long ride. I, I can't say, uh, I, I can't say I regret it, but I can say there were many, many times for my career field. I said, why don't we just go to Northern Virginia? Why don't we go here? Because it would have been so much easier but as a family, we chose to just stay in location, but that is uh, more rare. And, and at some point, the kids... It is rare. Yeah. At some point, um, my wife and my two sons were like, yeah, you can go, but we're staying here. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess it, it makes you work a little harder to t- try to be creative with coming up with ways to make money when uh, the majority of the population around you, you know, clears snow or sells maple syrup and you know depending on the season or does landscaping and i have no skills in any of those areas so yeah not not yet <laughs> I, I will say that eddie wills is a really smart submarine veteran and he's also a, a diehard surfer and body surfer who likes to play in the ocean off of san diego so when he decided to live in that area of the world it was a lifestyle for him as much as for anything else and he's moved around from a couple of different jobs over the years, but he's been able to find good careers in there because he's in an area that's got a high tech industry and it's got a, a lot of corporations in the area. You, on the other hand, uh, living in a, a little more rural area, maybe a little more isolated, <clears throat> you've got to make it work with what's available to you. And it's not always easy to do. No, no, definitely. You definitely can't just <clears throat> fall off the bus every other day and get a new job uh, here. No, here no, in the woods I, in New Hampshire. I will tell you, though, that. From, from what I hear, though, what made it work for you is the, the military persistence and the motivation skills you had and the ingenuity you had at figuring out how to make that all work. I mean, you were under a tremendous amount of pressure getting out of the military, I suspect, but you managed to make it all work and you understood how to handle stress and make priorities. And so it all worked out, right? So far, so good. <laughs> so far, yeah. Yeah. Still well, didn't... what I do see, ahead. though, 
people are leaving the service and they're trying to uh, get that that house that they want to buy their forever home as soon as they're getting out of the military. Uh, you probably have seen this before, is that when you're in that transition, it's very difficult to uh, convince a lender that you should be able to get a mortgage to buy that, that house you're looking for. When you're trying to buy your forever home, you're leaving one job and everybody knows that that military paycheck is going to stop, especially the lender. And you're moving to that new job, but you haven't earned a paycheck from that new job yet. Maybe you have a letter of commitment. Maybe they'll send up some kind of letter of an affirmation of your employment for the, uh, the lender to use to process your mortgage application. But maybe not. And so there have been problems where people have been trying to buy a home while they're still not a resident of that state, while they still don't have necessarily a proof of income. If uh, your income depends on veterans administration benefits like a VA loan or a VA disability compensation situation, that can also take a while to settle out. And so, again, it's a very stressful time. You're trying to buy that myth of that forever home and live up to that. And suddenly you find out that it's difficult to get financing or it's difficult to get in there. And as we now know from research, you might be leaving in a couple of years anyway. Absolutely. Once again, you're, you're spot on and nailing things that happened in my life for sure. <laughs> I can't go back I'm, now I'm and change it, but it was, uh, yeah, definitely getting, getting the proof of, uh, proof of funds, you know, uh, yep. qualifying for the home construction loan. Like you said, I, I did a lot of creative things because I happened to be uh, listening to a lot of Carlton Sheets, No Money Down cassette tapes at the time. Oh, yeah. And trying to be creative. So I sort of just, uh, you know, when you're that age as well, just taking all kinds of risks, just living on the edge and just made it work. But as I've said a few times to friends, I, yeah, I should have been part of that housing bubble to be able to get loans when I really didn't deserve them. Uh, but somehow it worked out in, in the end. And those are phenomenal uh, tips you just gave. And and I can attest to anybody who wants to sit and talk about it, well, why that makes perfect sense to wait 12 to 18 months on many levels. So I would have no rebuttals to what you wrote. <laughs> so thanks for sharing Good that. Well, uh, I do no want to ask you about surfing sometimes. It seems uh, I do want to have a retirement home in San Clemente. At least that's what I'm trying to talk my wife into when I went out to San Diego recently. But we've had a shark attack in Cape Cod, and I just wonder about, like, how how about in Hawaii? Is it is it risky where you where you surf? Uh, I can I've, I've done some studies on that, <clears throat> and right now the most risky place in the world to be surfing in the water next to the wildlife is out in Australia, and that's mainly because there's so many people in the water, and Australia's always had a very big, uh, vibrant aquatic life. When you read about the shark attacks, what you're reading about is the media having an exciting story to run the headlines on, and there's always some gory pictures to go with it. Uh, when you run the statistics behind a shark attack or some other incident out there in a surf break, what you're seeing is very low probability events. You've got a better chance of going out on your surfboard and getting struck by lightning than you do of getting bitten by a shark, but it gets a lot of attention in media. So you never hear the media talk about how every day tens of thousands of people went out and surfed and had a wonderful time, and none of them got attacked by a shark. So it's it's something to consider when you're out there, and there are certainly signs that you might have a shark in the area that you'll know about before you go down there and paddle out. Some people find it a little scary to be sitting out there in the water, getting ready to surf a wave, and realizing that you can't see under the water, you can't see anything coming around you underneath the water. Maybe that's a little scary. But on the other hand, I'm willing to take that risk because I know it's a very low probability. 
And because I get so much enjoyment out of surfing and because I have such a good time challenging my skills and my abilities on the waves, I will say that if you're planning to uh, retire and live in San Clemente and surf that area, bring a wetsuit. Uh, it gets kind of cold over there. But on the other hand, you're used to living in the blasted Arctic wastelands up there in the northeastern U.S. anyway. So you probably have plenty of thermal insulation. Uh, me, I, I can't handle anything um, lower than 70 degrees without a wetsuit. Oh, no. I Like I said, I grew up in South Florida. Even though I'm up here, I, my body hasn't really will never fully acclimate. So no, I, I definitely wouldn't be one of those guys out surfing. I just want a winter home. I just want a place I can go to for two months. And, and I, I kind of fell in love with that place the last time I was there. So, uh, and, and watch some guys. Oh, it's a beautiful country out there. Definitely interesting. So I want to ask you about, uh, getting back to real estate, the, when you do look for homes, cause I know you own at least four of them or, or, you know, I've been a landlord for like 20 years or more. Uh, what do you, what do you think is the best, way to invest or what's your philosophy on investing I'll make it general even though real estate's our subject here in terms of opportunity investing or geography based asset class or niche well back when we bought our last home the last home we've ever bought the one we're living in now that was the year 2000 and back then compared to today's tools i feel like back then we were using uh, clay tablets and wooden styluses the tools are so much better today for research and for figuring out what you want. So I'd start with uh, finding the thumb rules. You, you're you pretty familiar with the idea of the 1% thumb rule and finding a place that's going to have enough cash flow when you buy to take care of the expenses and to have give you a, a good cash flow, a good margin of profit, a good return on your investment. Uh, and then I, I can go any of those ways. It sounds like from what I'm reading on bigger pockets that it really doesn't necessarily matter what your niche is as long as you're comfortable with it. And so if you start out investing in uh, a property that's a single family home and you're just rehabbing it and renting it out to a tenant and you enjoy doing that, you should do more of that. Uh, if you've done one or two of those and you feel like you need to upgrade to uh, multifamily properties and you want to figure out how to get into a bigger deal, well, it's worth exploring. But however you do it, I think the most common advice that I see is to to take your time. You don't have to go out there and move fast. You don't have to go out there and find a property to purchase every month. Instead, you should keep screening the properties out there and finding ones that meet your criteria and be fairly rigorous about that. So that when you do find that, that neighborhood you're comfortable with or that type of property you prefer to invest in, whatever your niche turns out to be, Make sure that that niche is fairly rigorous, that you can let a lot of slow pitches go by because they're just not quite right. And the other advantage of that, of continuing to screen and keeping a a strict criteria, is that when you do find a good property, you'll immediately know it and you'll be ready to pounce on it. Now, that means that there are going to be times when months, maybe years go by, where you won't find a property that you can invest in. And uh, maybe that's a problem. It makes you feel kind of bad that you're not buying properties, that you're not investing and growing your business. But... On the other hand, maybe it's a very risky environment to be investing at that point. So maybe it's worth letting things go by until they meet your criteria. And you said earlier about we wish you'd invested in the real estate bubble when everybody could get a loan, whether they had any income or not. Uh, maybe that's a sign that the properties you were buying were going to be really expensive. You'd be buying at the top of the market. The next thing you know, you'd have the market collapse around you and you have trouble getting tenants. So whenever there are plenty of bargains out there, if you've got the criteria, you're ready to buy what you want to buy in your niche. And whenever the market is overheated, whenever the properties that are coming on the market are a bad deal, at least you're avoiding risky leverage and and the possibility that you might buy at the top of the market and then have a really hard time getting a good return out of your investment. 
personally, uh, we started with geography because we're on an island that's only 30 miles wide and 40 miles tall. And after that, we've been very comfortable with single-family homes. But the reasons we've invested in this house that we still have is that it's a very nice place to live for the rest of your life. It's very age-in-place friendly. And so although we bought it in 1989 when we moved to Hawaii because real estate always goes up, in the last 10 or 15 years, we also appreciate the value of that house as somewhere that we might live in when we're in our 70s, 80s, someplace where we're not very mobile anymore and we need a, an age-in-place friendly house. Sure, sure. Are you actively – so are you actively – still looking at real estate deals or you just sticking with the single family homes you have in it, terms of it's investing? A, it's a very interesting thing. I, I'm not, I'm not buying, I'm not out there trying to make more money. Uh, I'm very interested in it and I've been very curious about all different kinds of investing over the years. And so I'm still fairly busy reading, uh, for example, reading the bigger pockets website or talking to other real estate investors and trying to figure out if uh, there's something that I do want to get involved in. Uh, I meet up with a local real estate investors group here in Oahu every month, and we sit there and talk about real estate and talk about where we're finding bargains. I don't see myself complicating my life again by buying more investment properties. I I think I'm at a point in my life here now where I'm ready to uh, back away from landlording and simplify. Uh, We are still holding on to this one property because of of the asset, because of the potential for moving back into it someday. Uh, but that's a little bit more on family concerns as well. Uh, my daughter is on active duty. She and her spouse are both Navy officers, and they're going to be moving around in the Navy for several more years. Maybe someday they'll want to live in the house that we're living in now that's our home. Uh, and if that happens, then maybe my wife and I would move back into our rental property and live in that place, and that way we'd have all the family gathered together on Oahu. Uh, on the other hand, maybe my daughter doesn't want to live anywhere near mommy and daddy anymore. <laughs> maybe she'll make some living decisions. I just don't know. I do know that I need to hold on to this uh, rental property for another five or ten years and let that family situation sort itself out. We uh, we see this uh, rental property as a bird in the hand, uh, and it's probably worth holding on to. Sure. Uh, having said that, I do look around the island a lot, uh, and I've become interested in uh, in private lending and also hard money lending. And we've looked at those, and we'll continue to look at those opportunities. Uh, I've seen a number of, well, well, what I would call slow pitches go by, but I haven't really seen an opportunity to work with somebody that I know really well and will be able to do a good thing for us. I, I have seen some some people that who know what they're doing and looks like they're doing a pretty good job of it, and maybe I'll invest with them someday as a, as a private lender. I don't see myself getting into the hard money lending business, although for quite a while I was very interested in the companies that were crowdsourcing the hard money lending by getting you into a little bit of a property for a short period of time. And those look very attractive, but in general, I haven't found anything that I really enjoy doing. I just keep an eye on the market and try to figure out what the risks are and whether or not we want to take advantage of them. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, that sounds um, like a really well thought out and conservative approach. And I mean, there's a reason why you were financially independent at age 41 <laughs> and li- listening to you talk it through. It's, it seems like you analyze things and really think through uh, mitigating risk and being smart about your money as opposed to r- risky and impulsive in terms of the moves you make. And so private money lending actually makes sense to me uh, more and more lately. Uh, I personally have only been focused now for several months on raising capital for apartment syndication deals that tend to be uh, uh, much more conservative, not, not development deals, but value added apartment complexes. All right. 
and uh, people and the people I'm running into are more are more like you, I'll say, or the people that have their acts together that are thinking about uh, returns. They're not the ones that say, it seems like if I say, well, you got an 8% preferred return on this, but you got a good chance of 20% annual return over the five-year period of, say, five-year buy and hold. Um, that seems to sound really good to at least the conservative investors that I've talked to, whereas I've talked to people, ironically, that are less seasoned that hear that 8% preferred return and they say, well, uh, well, why would I do that? I'll just put my money in a mutual fund or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's really interesting to listen. And <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so so moving ahead, I guess uh, because of all, all your advice and I'm hoping that people listen to this, uh, uh, go back and, and look at your many articles or your book, I want to ask you if you could go back in time, I guess, if you could go, give advice to s- someone young in the military that's looking to invest and they, they know that real estate's probably a way ahead for them, or maybe they're thinking about investing in the general sense, say someone in their, their 20s or late 20s, what kind of advice would you give a person like that or for yourself if well, you could go back in time? I, go ahead. Oh, yeah. The first thing I'd advise is that the tools are out there and don't feel like you're missing any opportunities. Take the time to go out there and find those tools and get familiar with them and read and learn and absorb as much information as you can before you leap into that first deal. And so read Bigger Pockets' website and listen to the podcast. Listen to podcasts like yours. Go find all the resources you can on the finances of finding a good bargain investment property. And don't get pressured into buying if you're not ready. Don't get pressured into buying if the numbers don't quite work out the way you want it to. And another idea is to be familiar with the market in your area, but also be aware that there are probably many more places in America that are undervalued more than the market you're in right now. When we're in the military, we tend to live in duty stations that are in very large cities or in very popular areas of the country, especially in the Navy with all the coastal cities. And they're not very good bargains for real estate necessarily. Now, on the other hand, I can tell you quite, quite a few Army and Marine bases that are in areas of the country that have a lot of bargain real estate. That's because it's hard to find tenants who have jobs who want to live in them. So you have to be very careful where you research. And the skills that you pick up from reading and listening to podcasts and working in investment groups with other people, that works out real well. Once you feel like you've got that knowledge base, and, and it might take you six months to a year to feel comfortable with that, then start screening deals, start talking to people. And start figuring out if you really do want to buy. I I am a kind of a person who only learns from experience. Thank goodness I've learned from experience or I wouldn't be on this podcast today. But that Mm -hmm. experience uh, comes from making mistakes. And you're going to jump into that first property. And I would advise giving it some time to figure out how you are as a landlord, how you're going to assemble a team if you need contractors for a rehab or if you need a property manager because you got transferred four time zones away from your rental property. Once you've figured out what kind of a landlord you want to be and how you want to do the real estate investing, then you'll know what direction you want to go in. And and like you say, it's finding your niche. It's finding the kinds of properties you want to invest. It's finding the parts of the country you want to invest in. And it's finding the kinds of tenants that you want to have. So that all takes time. And I would encourage anybody in their 20s to just take a year to make sure you deeply study that and understand it. And while you're doing that, I'd also advise anybody in your 20s to focus on the career. Get, Get your military career 
to the point where you understand what you're doing, you're you're learning, you're qualifying, you're promoting. Uh, work on that career because you're going to have to build up your side income. It's going to take five or ten years to build up that side income. So the advice of don't quit your day job means get as good as you can at your day job and make sure you understand how to do it well so that you're ready for the day that you do decide to make real estate your main career instead of just your side career. And that also includes getting your finances in order. You got to live below your means. You got to get a high savings rate wherever you can. And you got to have that money invested in a good asset allocation that diversifies your net worth, your assets, so that when you do start investing in real estate, you don't have to bet it all on that first rental property. You've got other investments that you can either live off of, or you've got other investments that will at least give you a savings for retirement while you're figuring out the real estate. Because again, you're going to get experience by making mistakes. And those first few years of investment properties might not work out anywhere near the way you expected them to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good, good, solid advice, uh, Doug. And it's, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you here today. I'm getting uh, close to the end here. I don't want to keep you on the line too long, but I did want to ask, uh, besides your own book, which I, I think will be invaluable to anybody listen to, uh, I mean, to read, but it, do you have any other uh, books you might advise or a favorite one of yours that you think every every person who is going to get into investing uh, could use? I've got a couple of resources that aren't well known but are my favorites. Uh, and I would encourage people to start looking at the Bigger Pockets uh, book catalog. There's a book there on how to get started in real estate investing. That's a great starter manual. It's it's worth the money to buy it in ebook format or even hard copy and read through that because you're going to mark it up. You're going to highlight areas. You're going to learn from that. I'd also suggest that people uh, go study uh, a website by a guy named Frank Gallinelli. And the website is Real Data, R-E-A-L-D-A-T-A, realdata.com. And in there, he sells a lot of tools, and, and they're valuable tools, but I wouldn't buy anything from him right away. What I would do is read about the financial analysis that he suggests you do before you buy that first property. We're all familiar with the 1% thumb rule, but Gallinelli dives into things like the capitalization ratio, net operating income, setting aside money for reserves, all the things you need to do to set up a little – uh, backstops and the tripwires and the indicators to make sure that you stay on track and you're diversified and you're not too highly leveraged and that you're ready for that disaster when somebody's furnace dies or their air conditioner dies or you need a new roof because the hurricane took off the old roof. Those are the catastrophes that you can think about that you can get planning for and get things in place. But he talks about how to know that before you get into the rental property. So realdata.com has been a valuable resource. Okay. And and then after that, you're going to go out there and search for the blogs and the, and the other podcasts that, that speak to you. Uh, some people are very comfortable leveraging up in the real estate and having a big mortgage and having fairly thin profit margins. Others feel much more comfortable buying one property, paying it off and finding another bargain property and maybe getting a small mortgage there and paying that off before they go for their third rental property. You have to stay with inside your comfort zone because, as you know, you can have all the brilliant math and logic on your side, but if you're uncomfortable with the plan, if you feel like you're leveraged, and if you're having trouble sleeping at night, that'll derail all the math and logic in the world. And Absolutely. especially if you're trying to explain to your spouse, right? If your spouse isn't on board with what you're doing or thinks you're taking crazy risks, well, you're probably right. <laughs> yep. I've lived that one too. <laughs> We've all been there. Definitely. Uh, that's uh, great advice. I'm definitely going to check out Frank Allenelli. I, I am on Bigger Pockets uh, 
at least once a week. So I, I, I um, will look at that as well. And I'll post some show notes when this one goes up uh, as well. I enjoy so. bigger pockets because I get a little dose every week. You know, it takes me 10 or 20 minutes to read an email or to listen to a webinar. And I really enjoy having those small doses of knowledge instead of trying to do it all in a six hour deep dive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Those guys have a, a great thing going on with that. And I purchased a few books off of uh, bigger pockets as well. And uh, 15 hours of commuting I do three spread across three days a week. It gives me a lot of time to listen to podcasts and not get aggravated by traffic. But hey, Doug, do you have so you have any other thoughts or advice you you think maybe you didn't cover before we wrap up here today? No, I, I would tell anybody who's in the military right now and they're trying to think about how to reach financial independence. Uh, the math works for military families and it works for civilians too. And it, it starts with uh, figuring out where your money's going. In other words, track your expenses. And then you'll figure out where you're wasting money and you'll start working on a high savings rate. Uh, I do talk quite a bit more about all military benefits and pay and pension issues and other ways to reach financial independence. And uh, lately, now that we've been financially independent for 16 years, I get a lot of questions about life after financial independence. Uh, I'm happy to answer all those questions. I do get dozens of reader emails and Facebook posts every week. And so far, I'm I'm answering them all by myself. I'm, I'm keeping up and I'm happy to discuss it. Awesome. Awesome. That's, that's uh, wonderful. So where can people get in touch with you to learn more about, um, uh, I would, I would search for the blog that, yeah, the, the military guide, uh, it's the hyphen military hyphen guide.com. Uh, we've been around for over eight years. So if you enter the military guide into a search engine, or if you enter my name, Doug Nordman into a search engine, you're going to find the blog. Uh, I would advise everybody to find the book at a military-based library or a public library near you. It's in a, a hundred libraries all around the world, and read it in the library before you make a decision about buying it. Uh, of course, if you want an ebook, then you have to go to Amazon like everybody else. And again, you're going to see me on Facebook, you're going to see me on social media, and you can uh, learn and ask questions there just as well. You don't necessarily need the book unless you want to have something that you uh, can refer to again and again and again and, and read and highlight that. I appreciate it, Doug. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and learning from you. And I look forward to having you back again sometime. And uh, have a good day. Hey, Jim, anytime. All right, you too. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served. And I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. Because the flag still stands for freedom. And they can't take that. Cause there ain't no doubt